0: If you're a North Korea news aficionado like me, you probably came across the NK News website well before discovering the podcast. It's an incredible source that gets you behind the headlines to give you what's probably the most reliable and evidence-based news on North Korea. Every business day, you'll get between 5 to 10 articles that provide exclusive news, detailed analysis and informed opinions. And guess what? Each week, they send you forward-looking week-ahead briefings and news alerts to keep you ahead of the curve. There's more. NK News members also get special reader-only benefits, access to exclusive events and online conferences, and perpetual access to our archive of podcasts. And here's the best part. You can get a $100 discount on your annual subscription with the code PODCAST. Redeem this podcast-only special today by visiting nknews.org slash discount that's nknews.org/slash/discount. Hello, listeners, and welcome to the NK News podcast. I'm recording this uh, short pre-interview on Tuesday, the 29th of August, 2023. Doing it via Zoom, and we have on the show one of my excellent colleagues from NK News and NK Pro, Colin Swirko. Colin, welcome back on the show. Hey, how's it going? Colin, how was your um, civil defense drill last week?
1: Yeah, that was a bit underwhelming. Uh, Yeah, yeah, it didn't seem like many people out here were paying too much attention to it. But, uh, you know, at least personally, I feel prepared. I I live
0: in a building that is a uh, mixed use uh, residential and commercial building. And I went down to the management office before the drill on the same day, so let's say maybe around 10 8, 11 a.m. in the morning, and I asked the management office people, "Where is our nearest shelter?" And they looked at themselves and they looked at me with confusion,
1: and nobody knew and nobody thought to ask. Yeah, I think it was the same around here. The the doors in our building were locked except oh. for the re- revolving door, and I asked the uh, the first floor attendant yeah. guy, and he said, uh, "Yeah, they're they're locked because it's raining. We don't want the floor to get slippery." So that was. That was fun, <laughs> and there's a building next
0: door to where I live, which is an office building, which uh, is, according to Kakao Maps, listed as a uh, civil defense drill saw or uh, place of evacuation or, or shelter. And I went to the uh, the first floor. Uh, this is after the drill, and I asked, "Did you have people coming here to use the shelter?" And he said, "Oh no, this shelter is only for people who work in the building. Yeah, we don't <laughs> yeah, let outsiders in." And I said, "But it's listed on Kakao Maps." And he said, "Well, I guess in." In case of an actual emergency, people might be able to come in, but uh, normally we don't. So, yeah, I saw a lot of ignorance, a lot of confusion, a lot of
1: complacency. Yeah, a lot of the, the, I got that sentiment too, that, well, this isn't an actual emergency, so we're not really going to change anything. Right. Um, (laughs) But, you know, I I don't think the risk is too high for nuclear war, but maybe that's just me. Maybe. Yeah,
0: exactly. Uh, Now, in the last week, we had another satellite launched by North Korea, another failure. What happened?
1: yes so uh this is actually well this time actually south korean people were not alerted to go seek shelter for this satellite launch like like the one in may may Uh, 31st yeah yeah, so back in may at the end of may north korea made their first attempt to launch a military reconnaissance satellite into orbit and it uh exploded or no no it didn't explode. it fell Mm. uh, because the second stage engine didn't ignite and then north korea said they would try again then right. they announced last week that they would try again starting anywhere between august twenty fourth and the end of the month. And then they once again, they went with their very first opportunity within that window. and they launched it sort of surprisingly at uh, just before four a m mm. uh, on august twenty fourth So they launched the satellite rocket. It made it past the 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 first stage separation. The second stage separation as well, uh, according to North Korean state media, and also I think South Korean military also agreed. So it did better than the last one, but then it exploded at the third stage. So it failed. Uh, And North Korea came out right away, just a Mm. couple hours after the explosion and said, failed, but we're going to try again in October. So North Korea is being much more confident this time. They've actually uh, improved upon the last launch, but they said that some sort of self-destruct mechanism caused the failure. So this mm. seems to be an accident, but we don't have enough information to know if, yeah. if this was a, like a triggered accident or some sort of automated system that accidentally went off. So
0: Now, with the May 31st launch failure, the uh, the satellite was eventually salvaged from the bottom of the sea by the, uh, the South Korean uh, Navy, I think. Uh, in this case, because it exploded, I'm guessing there's nothing to salvage, right? Or maybe just little bits and pieces, but not a whole satellite.
1: Right. We're still... Now, I'm still skeptical about what the South Korean government says that they recovered because they're not yeah. being transparent about it. They're not mm-hmm. showing photos. They're not giving out technical details. They released a really what I think is a political statement saying that it, they analyzed it and that it had no military use. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they're they're criticizing it as basically useless. But we heard you know behind the scenes that the U.S. didn't approve of this statement, huh. and they they haven't really proven their claims. So. Apparently, I guess there was no self-destruct mechanism that went off last time in May, but this time there was. And uh, we've also heard that even the first stage, which uh, the South Koreans recovered fully, well, you know, they covered like, they recovered a a large section of the rocket back in in June after the the May launch, Mm -hmm. that this time that first rocket debris that dropped actually exploded into many pieces. I haven't seen that this is like, Confirmed, but South Korea is out there trying to recover it, and maybe this means that North Korea installed a self-destruct mechanism in in each stage that was intended to drop, so uh, that the South Koreans couldn't get a hold of it and you know glean information about the program.
0: Right, and people who want to know more should definitely go to uh, nknews.org and read uh, our stories, including your excellent story last week on the day of the satellite launch and failure. Now, after months of speculation, some of it here on this podcast, but we, of course, did very low level and very careful speculation. It seems that North Korea is finally doing a partial border opening and allowing its citizens to return back to the mother country for the first time since uh, early 2020. And that's been reported in the Rodong Shinmun. Uh, tell a little bit more about that, Colin.
1: Yeah, so this was two days ago on Sunday. This is significant because North Korea is actually telling its uh the 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 domestic population that Mm. the the borders are opening to north koreans so you know back in july uh we had the first foreign delegation visits going to north korea in the form of uh, russians and chinese a russian military delegation and a chinese political delegation at a high level many people you know dozens of people came into the country the North Korean population saw this, and they would have thought, okay, mm. well, what about you know? I mean, these these are people with relative influence, relatively middle class type yeah. people in North Korea would have been thinking, well, you know, my family member who is a diplomat has been stuck abroad for three years, not yeah. allowed to come home because North Korea closed the borders in January 2020 because of the the pandemic, and maybe they were thinking, well, this isn't fair. What's up with this? And mm. uh, the the Russians and the Chinese didn't have to go through any quarantine. They just came right in, met with Kim Jong-un, went to military parade, et cetera, et cetera. We found out that the Russian embassy in Pyongyang told us Mm -hmm. that they had to actually go through quarantine for one week after the delegation left. So this means that North Korea conducted these events in a bubble of sorts. And then people who came in contact with the people from abroad then had to go into quarantine. So this indicated that while North Korea was lifting some of their restrictions, they were still very careful and worried about the, the spread of the virus. So now North Korea on Sunday announced in the Rodong Shunmun, the domestic top newspaper, that people are coming home. North Koreans are allowed to come home. These the weren't allowed, but they will have to go through a seven-day quarantine. So this mm-hmm. tells us that they're still, this is still one of the hot, most restrictive COVID policies in the world, let alone, you know, one of the most restrictive countries in the world. Let's not Mm -hmm. forget that North Koreans are not allowed to travel around the world freely. They're not allowed to leave their country for political reasons. They've increased border security in the last few years. It's basically a a prison nation. But the people are going to start coming home and we've heard that it's going to be gradual. So Yonhap reported Monday night that 300 North Koreans went into the country over the land border in the Northwest. And they're going to continue to come in, they're going to quarantine, but there's no indication yet that like, tourists are going to start coming in. Oh, yeah. Or, or, or diplomats. more diplomats, yeah. more yeah, rotations for foreign representatives in Pyongyang.
0: Wow. Okay. And what else have you been looking at in the last few days?
1: Yeah. So this morning, right now it's Tuesday. Uh, this morning, uh, news came out in the Rodong Shimun that Kim Jong Un visited the naval headquarters in oh, uh, yeah. near Pyongyang. Nice photo, a lot of white uniforms. Yeah, he went there with his daughter, who was still not named in the report, but mm. um, f- her first appearance in a few months. Uh, he did a speech. This was for the for Navy, Navy Day, which was August 28th on Monday, but they did the visit on Sunday, according to state media. So it's been rare in the last few years that Kim Jong-un has given such attention to the Navy, although... Yeah. You know, he visited a submarine under construction in 2019. He has reportedly done dozens of inspections of this new underwater uh, nuclear attack drone, quote unquote, uh, oh, called yeah. the Hayir. The Heyer. Hmm. yeah, that they uh, unveiled this year. Um, and he's done a couple of submarine-launched ballistic missile tests uh, in the last few years. But otherwise, he just last week he did his first surface ship, like a war, first inspection of a warship in mm-hmm. over four years, almost five years, I think, and. So he's giving more attention to the Navy these days. His his Navy commander, Kim Myung-sik, has been in the role for, I think, a decade. You know he, He's got a lot of confidence in the Navy, but it seems like he's just now kind of starting to give more attention, and he's promising that they're going to get their nuclear weapons deployed soon. He says in the future, you're going to be a prime part of our nuclear deterrent. So um, I, I think we should expect maybe some more uh, naval weapons reveals in the coming months. Yeah. But otherwise, this is all just centered around this holiday of the Navy Day.
0: Right. I, I see this uh, story that you've published just this morning titled Kim Jong-un Promises Nuclear Weapon Deployment to Navy in Visit to HQ. So that's definitely a story that people should go and read. What are the options in terms of nuclear weapons deployment to the Navy? Obviously, there's submarines, but is there anything else? That, or uh, Ship-to-air uh, launch missiles or things like that?
1: So last week he uh, inspected a warship that's been under construction for over a decade, but yeah. was there's it's called the Amnok class. That's the unofficial name. Uh, it doesn't really have an official name in state media that they offered. Mm -hmm. but it's supposed to have stealth capabilities. Uh, People are, experts are skeptical of some of its capabilities. It does not have an anti-air capability that could threaten U.S. reconnaissance planes, for example, Mm. Uh, coming after North Korea and media threatened to shoot down U.S. reconnaissance planes a, a few times in the last couple of months. But this ship demonstrated a cruise missile launch during Kim's inspection uh, this month, so on the east coast, and this is a cruise missile that North Korea says is nuclear capable. They haven't really demonstrated this miniaturized nuclear warhead capability yet, but experts can also just assume that it's a real development yeah but it's unclear if it's deployed and so that's equipped on this on that ship and then of course uh, they also launched that same cruise missile from a submarine earlier this year from torpedo tube and uh, they're developing nuclear submarine launched ballistic missiles that they haven't tested something of a large size since 2019. But they're intending to put these on submarines. But they also haven't showed us that they've developed these submarines uh, yet. So and there's only one under construction that we know of that would be able to handle a large ballistic missile with a longer range. But yeah, so North Kim Jong-un promised a lot more in this in this regard back in 2021.
0: So, All right. Well, let's wait and see how that goes. Thanks very much for coming on the show, Con. I hope you'll stick around and listen to my Interview with Eric penton Voke, former British coordinator on the United Nations panel of experts on North Korea. Thanks, Jacob. Ever wondered what lies beyond the inter-Korean border? NK News brings you an opportunity to explore North Korea from a near distance. From October 8th to 17, 2023, journey with us on the second ever North Korea from a distance tour visiting key border locations and observatories looking into North Korea, as well as meeting key figures working on DPRK issues. Spend two nights on the East Coast, see the beautiful Kumgang Mountains, scour the beaches near the inter-Korean border, and see Kim Il-sung's old summer house. Visit yeonpyeong the location of the November 2010 inter-Korean artillery bombardment. Observe North Korean hamlets from close quarters in Kanghwa and delve deep into the heart of Seoul, the capital of South Korea. Every step of the way, you'll be guided by leading NK News and Cordio Tour staff and be joined regularly for multi-day portions of the itinerary by leading experts like Andre Lankov, Chad O'Carroll, Chongmin Kim, Jack Ozwetzuk, and Gergovacci of Cordio Tours. As a special offer for our podcast listeners, quote podcast when making your booking for an exclusive 10% discount. Find out more at nknews.org tour. Once again, that's nknews.org slash tour and use the, the code podcast when booking. Let's journey into the unknown together. And for this week's feature interview, I am joined in the NK News studio by Eric penton voke the former coordinator of the UN panel of experts on the DPRK. He left in April of this year to talk about the future of UN sanctions monitoring and implementation, and of course, how the panel of experts works. So thanks for joining me on the
2: show, Eric. Jacko, uh, hello. Thanks uh, very much. It's a great pleasure to be here.
0: How long were you working in the UN panel of experts on the DPRK sanctions?
2: So I was there for for two years. Experts have a contract of one year Uh um, and have to renew that contract if they want to stay, and their performance is okay, up to a maximum of five years. Okay,
0: so there is a sunset clause, and five is the max.
2: Five is the max, yes.
0: And you left after two, and we'll probably find out why (laughs) as we go (laughs) throughout the chat. Uh, What kind of career path prepared you for that task? I mean, can anyone... Can I apply to be uh, the coordinator of the UN panel of experts?
2: I, I'm sure the UN would welcome your application, Jacko. You have ah. a great expertise in North Korea and uh, you seem a, a, a nice chap. Uh, I, I fear, however, you wouldn't get the job.
0: Does one have to be a diplomat? Or no, a diplomat? no, you
2: don't have to be a diplomat. Okay. Um, but you do, have to, you do have to tick a number of boxes to, to, ah. to, to get the job. My own boxes were ticked by a, a long career in the British Foreign Ministry.
0: Okay. And what other, like for other people or from other countries, what other kind of boxes are there that one would have to tick?
2: Fundamentally, you have to have worked on the subject of DPRK and yep. sanctions enforcement ah, for okay. uh, at least 10 years. Ah. Um, now, there are a number of ways you can have done that. Uh, yep. the, the panel has had uh, academics, but mainly they are former government officials and they are from some very specific countries.
0: Yes, I, I've written down some notes here. So I understand that the, uh, the panel composition is... Uh, the members of the P5, the five permanent members of the Nas- uh, United Nations Security Council, so we're talking uh, the United States, Russia, China, France, and Great Britain, so that's the P5, plus there's also on the, the panel of experts There's Japan is represented, the Republic of Korea, and another country. Is that that other country, currently Singapore, is that a rotational thing on a year-by-year basis, or how does that work? So,
2: yes, you're absolutely right. When, when the panel was first created, there were seven experts on it, and they were the representative so to speak of the p5 plus japan and korea right and then it was extended a couple of years later to include an eighth and uh, that particular expert is is always from another country yes you're right currently singapore
0: and is it does that change year by year
2: not year by year it's d- dependent on the expert if the expert moved yep. uh, moved on it, it would be it would change uh, ah. with them and and the job would be advertised and uh, there would be no guarantee that the next yep. expert would come from singapore
0: right it could be potentially any un member state i suppose
2: it could be from anywhere yes yep. uh, a- although i you, you couldn't have two representatives from the same right. country on on the panel
0: right and so, were you functioning as both the UK's representative on the panel and the coordinator?
2: So I was uh, an expert. I, I, my responsibility was regional uh, security and non-proliferation. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then there's an additional uh, responsibility imposed upon one of the experts uh, to be the coordinator of the panel, and that was me too. I would I would be slightly cautious about saying I was the representative of the UK uh, right. because that's precisely what experts are not. Um, okay, employed so to do
0: in Syria. So, well, in Syria, it, it, it's actually supposed to be an independent body with people drawn from P5 countries, but not actually representing those countries' interests, and not sent from the permanent mission to the United Nations of those five countries, of all, all those countries. Am e- I correct? Ex-
2: exactly right. Uh, I mean the. the the national membership of the panel is yep. consistent, but the panel is specifically employed to be impartial and independent.
0: Right. Are they, the members of the panel, are they UN employees?
2: No, they're not. Do it's they have a, it's sort of a slightly, strange, f- slightly strange, as you s- say, yeah. uh, a slightly strange status within the UN. The experts are not UN full-time employees. Ah. They are consultants to the UN uh, ah. and employed as consultants actually formally by the Security Council uh, on, a, on an annual contract.
0: And also paid by the Security Council?
2: Paid by the UN, the UN um, but as, as consultants. Right. And there is some extraordinary opacity regarding ah. some of the, the roles and responsibilities of consultants within the UN. The UN employs a huge number yeah. uh, of consultants, uh, IT consultants and so on and so forth uh, around the world. Experts are not quite normal consultants either. They are... Experts on panels uh, and there are a number of things associated with their contracts that that distinguish them from from other consultants, too But it's by no means Very clear
0: and so you're supposed to be beholden only to the Security Council or sorry to the Sanctions Committee not to uh, Whatever country you're from
2: Uh, in principle that that is uh, absolutely the case Yes, You, Uh, you are reporting to the UN as an independent impartial observer
0: Okay, now you you left after two years is that because the job
2: was, was difficult? Yes, fundamentally. There were a number of domestic reasons. I was in New York uh, on my own. Mm. My wife uh, chose not to accompany me to, to New York, and that, that was tough uh, yeah. as well. But I wouldn't say that was the primary reason why I chose to leave the panel. I simply didn't like it very much. Right. Uh, it's a very, very challenging and very frustrating job, and sometimes it's quite a lonely one. And frankly, I'd had enough after a couple of years.
0: Well... Uh, then let me switch to a light question. Uh, what song lyric from UK band The Smiths would best describe your work related to the UK? <laughs>
2: Jacko, that's an extraordinary left-field question. Um, but fortunately enough, you were kind enough to, to warn me in advance that you were going to ask me.
0: <laughs> I did. Uh, full disclosure, listeners, I did, in fact. Uh, this is the only question I told him in advance that I was going to ask him.
2: Uh, yes, so, so I, uh, I, I love the Smiths, and uh, your question actually caused me to, to fly back to their, um, their albums to have a, a, a look to see which lyric best suited yeah. uh, my job. And there are so many lyrics uh, by the Smiths that um that that might apply i mean any band that can have a song title what difference does it make yeah, yeah. Uh, or heaven knows i'm miserable no. now or even an album uh, the world won't listen uh, well, please w- please
0: let me get what i want <laughs> please, please not not quite so much
2: actually i didn't write that one down yeah. but there were there were two that i chose Jacko. Uh-huh. if you'll if you'll indulge me yeah please so frankly mr shankley The position I've held, it pays my way, but it corrodes my soul, (laughs) was was quite apt. Uh, And also, I was looking for a job, and I found a job, (sighs) and heaven knows I'm miserable miserable now. Uh, I I thought were probably uh, the most descriptive. Okay.
0: All right. Well, I'm going to read a little explanatory bit um, from the, uh, the bio that you sent me beforehand. The panel is an independent group of eight experts tasked with reporting twice annually to the Security Council on the implementation of UN sanctions on the DPRK. The reports, which are agreed by the consensus of the experts, contain detail of breaches of the sanctions regime and recommendations on how to close the loopholes of the existing regime. Now, could you remind our listeners why there are and continue to be sanctions in place on the DPRK?
2: The UN's sanctions regime on DPRK kicked off quite a long time ago, uh, and I hesitate to say exactly when, um, but it was the resolution 1718 in 2007. I'm no longer an expert, Jack. The first nuclear
0: test was 2006, so I want to say it was probably uh, the year after that or something. Uh,
2: 1718 was the first sanctions resolution. Uh, It wasn't uh, the one that that created the panel of experts. It was created with 1874 and 2009. But the series of sanctions resolutions were imposed by the UN in order to prevent DPRK from developing weapons of mass destruction, but also with uh, an eye on easing the tensions on the Korean Peninsula uh, as a whole and seeking a political solution to the problems that have, have affected the peninsula.
0: Are they designed to be punitive? Is that the intent of
2: sanctions? No, no, that is not the intent, although there is an argument that that's what they can appear to be. Mm -hmm. Uh, And there is an aspect to sanctions which is is didactic. It teaches other countries that might want to be developing WMD uh, that actually there will be consequences if they do so, uh, contrary to the wishes of of the international community. They're they're not punitive. Uh, They're targeted measures. uh, And the UN has learned a great deal about how to create sanctions that actually achieve its its aims over, over the years. Obviously, there's a huge debate about the efficacy of sanctions, mm. uh, what, what they actually achieve. Um, maybe we'll, we'll go into that, but um, oh, yeah. but that's not the function of the panel. The panel is simply there to look at what the, pa- the, what the sanctions are uh, trying to achieve right. and reporting on how they're implemented.
0: Yeah, so if they were implemented fully and, and effectively by all member states, what do we imagine would be the desired outcomes of the sanctions with regards to the DPRK?
2: so the sanctions are only part of the process and and that that is often forgotten ah. that, that there ought to be and sometimes has been a political process going on behind the scenes which is seeking to persuade uh, the the DPRK leadership to abandon their WMD programs and to come to some sort of a political agreement with the ROK government
0: and how effective, well, okay, so one of the first things that I remember being sanctioned in the time after the first North Korean nuclear test in 2006 was there was a, probably in 2007, there was a, this ban on the importation of luxury goods. That was the first area that was really comprehensively sanctioned. So they were targeting things like high-end alcohol and perfume and cars and, and cigars and things like that. Uh, and I'm wondering, this, and this is going back to, yeah, as I said, probably 2007, so at 16 years now. How effective are those sanctions to one of the longest-lasting areas and yet luxury-branded alcoholic beverages seem to still be available in Pyongyang this year?
2: Yeah, so the, the sanctions resolutions on, on DPRK have got better uh, over time. When you
0: say better, is it more targeted, more uh, uh, pointed? Cl-
2: yes, uh, exactly. M- much clearer about what they're trying to achieve uh. Uh, and who they're aimed at. The luxury goods provisions of 1718 were aimed at the the elite yes. uh, surrounding the, the DPRK leadership, uh, and I think reflected a feeling in, in New York and in diplomatic circles that actually these people were developing weapons uh, and testing nuclear nuclear uh, warheads uh, whilst enjoying the, the, the best things that yeah. the world had to, to offer. And so there were provisions written about sanctioning luxury goods. The trouble is, uh, and, and those sanctions are still in place, that luxury goods still should not be going to, to DPRK, in order to make it clear to the DPRK elite that um, the world is unhappy mm. with, with the development of WMD, but I'm, I'm not sure it was terribly well constructed, uh, and particularly as luxury goods have never actually been defined. And I mean I know what a luxury good is, it's generally something that I probably can't afford. But actually, it, it is extraordinarily difficult to identify the line. And it, there, there are some cultural uh, issues uh, on that as well. What is a luxury uh, in the U.S. Yep. might very well not be uh, in another country.
0: Now, currently, the United Nations sanctions regime on the DPK is probably the most wide-ranging set of measures imposed on a U.N. member state in history.
2: Is this a strength or a weakness? So they're, they're definitely the, the, the most wide-ranging uh, series of sanctions. In terms of strength and weakness, I, you could argue it either way it does firstly there's a problem in that it looks punitive secondly you're simply heaping more and more forbidden things on a regime that might dig in in response to to each and every new resolution on the other hand and this is where the, the panel comes in each and every resolution responds to previous loopholes that the, um, that the panel has sought to identify. And so over time, the understanding of what the DPRK is trying to do, what it requires to do, uh, what it requires to obtain to, to achieve its aims, become clearer and clearer. And increasingly, those things are the things that are sanctioned in, in, subsequent, in each subsequent um, resolution. So there's some strength in it, but there are some weaknesses as well, I think, in the, in the, in the width yeah. and, and the depth of some of these sanctions.
0: Now, the panel of experts, so that's the eight of you in this organization, your job is to investigate things and then to write a report on them, which is then submitted to the, uh, to the sanctions committee and to the, the, this nas- the Security Council. Do you, in, the, in that process, do you liaise or attempt to liaise with the DPRK permanent mission to the UN stationed in New York? No.
2: Uh, well, at least while I was coordinator, that, that didn't happen. I'm not sure if my predecessors on, on the panel have, have been in touch with the DPRK mission. The DPRK has its own views on the efficacy uh, of the UN sanctions regime. It doesn't recognize them. Uh, and Does it
0: try to submit things, statements, appeals, protests? Not
2: directly to the the, the panel, no. Uh, at least not while while I've been in the job. Yeah. Um, the uh, DPRK tends to completely ignore the panel of experts uh, uh-huh. and, and its its role. Sanctions are simply a, a bad thing that are massively criticized by the DPRK, um, but the mechanisms of their enforcement are, are very rarely referred to, I think. Mm.
0: Okay, now you, uh, so the, the panel of experts, releases reports twice a year as part of its, its mandate, and it often seems like draft reports are leaked well in advance of the actual reports coming out. Can you comment on that?
2: I can comment on it. I, I can't explain it, really. The panel's drafting processes are indeed completely confidential, and no one on the panel talks outside of the uh, outside of the, the the group about its investigations, and that's uh, a month-long process, right? The, the actual drafting is about a month, maybe okay. slightly less. But it, but actually, when when the the panel gets together, either yep. in, in person or, or on Microsoft Teams, mm-hmm. to draft the report, that that is a confidential process. But the report, as soon as it is completed and agreed by the panel, it is then sent off in a draft form uh, to the committee, the 1718 committee, which oversees DPRK sanctions. And the, D, uh, the, the 1718 committee gets the first look at, at the mm. report. At some stage, the panel report seems to leak. Um, uh, and that's a... That's a pretty predictable uh, is after
0: it's been handed to the 1718 committee Uh, indeed uh, indeed
2: it it has not uh, at least it hasn't recently uh, I can't comment on earlier but um but uh, recently it hasn't leaked until it's got to the committee and I don't think the the panel report leaks from the panel itself the panel takes a number of IT precautions to try and ensure that that is the case they are really quite tough uh, restrictions inside that, that actually hamper the drafting of the report but which the, the panel has taken upon itself voluntarily uh, in order to prevent it from being accused of, of leaking the report itself. But as soon as it's out in the, uh, out in the wild, it, it does seem to be leaked. And some really don't like that. I, I mean, I, I don't like it either, particularly uh, if the panel uh, or even myself uh, are blamed for that. Leak. Mm. And, and I was asked to explain why on earth it was happening several times. I, I think I can explain why it happens. I think. Uh, members of the 1718 committee see a report that is by then actually an unclassified report. Mm -hmm. It's been agreed by the panel and will be published subject to the agreement of the 1718 committee and the the Security Council. It will be published uh, as an unclassified document on on the UN website uh, and it won't be changed substantively from when it leaves the panel to to when it's published. So the content of it is not actually Mm. sensitive or, or will not be sensitive. It's simply a a, it's a procedural thing that the committee likes to, to look at it first and be seen to, to approve it. But I can see why some members of the committee might want to publicise the, the, main, the main stories contained in the panel's report. That's up to them. It, it's quite annoying, but you can see what happens.
0: So, the, the most recent report, which I downloaded from the UN website, I think it came out in February this year, if I'm correct.
2: I think it was published in March, March actually. Right. I, I think it was the 6th or 7th of March it was actually published. Ah. But it, the panel uh, submitted that. I can't remember the date. But it was at some point at the end of, of January, mm. maybe the 29th or 30th, uh, I think. And then it will have gone through the committee for a month. Then it will have gone after another pause to the Security Council. Yep. And then it has to be edited through a, a long, long process where commas are inserted edited in the right Edited form, place. not content, right? That's that's right. The panel's report has a, a very strict word count, mm. um, uh, and uh, when when we draft it, yep. uh, we use the initials DPRK yep. to refer to the country that is sanctioned. Yep. But uh, as a formal UN document, acronyms for countries are not permitted. I and did so not know this. So, um, the DPRK has to be expanded ah. to say the Democratic People's Republic of Korea. Right. Each time we use the, <laughs> the acronym in the report, which so you've actually gone from makes it one word to four. Yeah. Uh, exactly. It makes it one word to four, um, which actually y- y- you mentioned DPRK quite a lot in a report, yeah. and it is quite frustrating. It also makes for very, very clumsy reading. It's absolutely infuriating to have to to, to use the full name of the country. But, you know, the the UN rules are the UN rules and they they will be followed.
0: So this report uh, contains 81 pages plus many times more that in 95 annexes. So the whole document is 487 pages in total. Who's supposed to read all that in the ideal world?
2: You are, Jacko. Everyone's supposed to read it.
0: I didn't get through all the
2: pages. <laughs> so the, the word count, I should explain, applies to the main text mm. uh, only. The 81 the, pages. The 81 pages. Uh, the, the annexes uh, are, have slightly less attention paid to them in terms of editing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, sometimes there's uh, that it's not translated, uh, so it's in the original languages. The annexes contain the evidence, or the bulk of the evidence, that the panel has used to come to the conclusions expressed uh, in the main text. And they contain some really interesting detail that... Um, mm, a lot of
0: photographs too, listeners. You'll find a lot of uh, satellite imagery, for example. and. Tables of ship names and stuff.
2: Oh, there's all sorts of good stuff and in names. there. You, it's uh,
0: really, for the geeks out there, this is, you can really geek out over this stuff. So,
2: so that, that is where the, um, the the actual evidence for our conclusions yeah. are. are. The, the report, the main report, although it, it is evidence-based, uh, our, our investigations are detailed, but we simply, for, for word count reasons, yeah. simply can't go into the sort of detail that might be required. So some of the drafting in the main text is actually... Very, very condensed uh, and quite complex uh, ideas are expressed in uh, as few words yeah. as possible. And it can be, can be quite a difficult read, although we do try quite hard to make it uh, accessible to, uh, to people who don't look at DPRK sanctions evasion on a daily basis. But fundamentally, uh, it's written for the Security Council uh, to take action. And so we expect uh, UN member states to read the report. Possibly not the annexes. Mm. And, uh, we would, would I think, the panel would like to think that uh, we can be trusted to provide evidence for our, our claims yeah. and be relied upon for the accuracy of those claims. Is it accurate? Uh,
0: how, how it, it, do you stand behind you know the last report that you uh, that you put out before you
2: left? The panel? Uh, it, it is accurate, Jacko, yes. What level and some, of confidence? Some, sometimes, sometimes there are slip-ups, mm-hmm. sometimes there are things that are, are misunderstood, or actual simple typos. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, you know, the names of ships, or the names of individuals, and things like that. But uh, And, and th- those things happen. Uh, the panel is human, but in general, we are, uh, the evidentiary standards are very, very high uh, on, on, on the panel's report, uh, for the most part. And the uh, we're, we're you know, these are people's lives that mm. we're, uh, and their livelihoods that we're, we're talking about. There are consequences for people and entities who are named in the report. Um, and we need to be sure that mm. it's uh, accurate before we publish.
0: Has the DPRK ever, uh, through its mission in New York, said uh, we'd like to make a couple of corrections?
2: No. No, the DPRK doesn't recognize the work of the panel and never comments on its reports. Mm. Okay.
0: Now, the the panel, you know, the the sorry, the reports are uh, quite granular in terms of specific breaches of sanctions. So, uh, are there fundamental, big-picture issues that the panel of experts doesn't or cannot deal
2: with? Yes, there are, uh, Jacko. Some quite significant issues that uh, the panel can't report on. There are a number of reasons for that. Uh, it is a, a pretty tactical document. It it, it contains a, a huge quantity of individual cases of sanctions evasion by individuals or entities. And there's a lot of, as you've mentioned, specific ship names, mm. but there are uh, company names in there that, that we believe, as a result of our investigations, have been involved in sanctions evasion. But the, the overall picture that it paints is fundamentally a very detailed and tactical document of specific cases of sanctions evasion. The panel is not able, for a variety of reasons, to come to the, more, the bigger picture Oversight about the the state of implementation uh, mm. of, of sanctions, and that's because of some internal tensions, uh, I think, and some and some failings of, of the panel's structure.
0: In, in what ways have uh, sanctions on the DPRK and their implementation become politicized over the last few years? Well, that's that's the issue.
2: Mm. Um, uh, and fundamentally, uh, as we've discussed, the, the the panel panel experts are are recommended by. A small number of nation-states mm-hmm. um, uh, and so that's inherently political when you look at who those those nation-states are those uh, panel experts are appointed with with the approval and support of those countries however they are appointed as independent experts and most uh, of the of the panel uh, are able to rise above their own personal nationality and act as impartial and objective observers of a phenomenon, the, the breach of, of, of sanctions. However, that's not the case for all the experts, and that is a problem in drafting a report when the playing field on which the experts are, are operating is, is not level, when, when people are actually representing the interests of their states rather than the, the facts. Mm,
0: okay, so and, and the reports are written by consensus, so everyone has to agree on everything that goes into the report, right? Yes. So Presumably, if, if there's, a, you know, there's eight of you on the, on the panel and if, if one person is from uh, Country X and there's a, an annex that says Country X collaborated with the DPRK in, in, in breach of sanctions in this way, that the independently appointed representative on the panel who happens to come from Country, country X may say, well, I'd actually rather that not go into the report. Is that, is that kind of how it
2: works? So that's, that's how it works for some countries, Jacko, yes. It, it, it's, it's, a, it's a tricky thing, but impartiality and, and uh, independence yeah. uh, are really pretty easy concepts to understand. And I used to relish uh, any mention of the UK because actually I thought, yes, we, we need to mention this.
0: You, you mean whether, in cases where the UK had either slipped up or been lax in implementation of sanctions or, or somebody from the UK? There was a story, I think, in the media recently where a... Uh, a Britain-based now deceased uh, insurance broker was doing things with, uh, with North Korea that were in, in breach of sanctions.
2: Yes, I, I mean I, I remember that. That wasn't from my time on the panel, but I remember that, that case. And, mm. and it, it, it's, it's only right and proper that, that if, if uh, individuals from particular countries are breaking sanctions, uh, then the, the panel should be able to, to highlight that. Now, there are issues with that, of course. But and actually, uh, there were very very few individuals or entities involved in the UK while I was the, the coordinator. But actually, as a as an impartial observer uh, of what's going on, yeah. I, I used to relish the, the mention of the UK because it was enabled me to demonstrate that I was not I was not representing the interests of the UK uh, in, in in doing my job. That's not the case for all the experts, and that is a fundamental problem.
0: Okay, so. Uh, Yes. Now, if an individual from country X is doing something, that's one matter. But if a whole country X is somehow uh, not implementing sanctions and that country also happens to be represented in the panel of experts, that makes things a whole – that's a whole different kettle of fish, isn't it?
2: It is a whole different kettle of fish, and that that is fundamentally the kettle of fish that I've been trying to deal with over the last two years. There are, as I say, independence and impartiality are not difficult concepts, but in some countries they are. Uh, right. And that is a particularly difficult when those countries are also not really implementing sanctions, as they might.
0: Now, we're, uh, we're kind of skirting around the issue <laughs> and not mentioning the other <laughs> things in because you're under a, uh, a confidentiality clause. You can't say certain things and have to be uh, tactful in public. I understand that. Yeah. How heated could those meetings get, those consensus-building meetings where, you know, there's evidence presented, you're writing a report together, and some people on the panel said, yeah, you can't put this in?
2: Yes. So, I, yeah, I apologize for skirting around things. Um, I, I think I've become too used to uh, being cautious with my, my words. And I, I, it, it's necessary to be cautious with words, I think, in, in, in public. Um, but I hope uh, listeners can, can kind of appreciate what, what I'm saying. I I must stress that although there is a confidentiality agreement in my UN contract, it doesn't involve this. I mean, I'm not allowed to talk about investigations that are ongoing. Ah. Uh, As the coordinator, I'm allowed to talk about stuff that the the panel has published. But I can't talk to anyone uh, about ongoing investigations, and uh, I wouldn't do that.
0: Okay. Uh, Now, as well as containing the results of investigations the report also has recommendations uh, at the end of each section and then one the last annex annex number 98 i think it is is five pages of consolidated recommendations from all the different sections of the report and in that that most recent report that came out in march of this year the panel recommended that the sanctions committee consider renewable and standing exemptions for humanitarian aid actors and humanitarian re- related commodities and also emphasize the urgency of re-establishing a durable banking channel to allow the sustainable resumption of humanitarian operations. Listeners to this podcast and people who have engaged with the DPRK over years will know that there are often unintended consequences, unintended harmful consequences on humanitarian activities because of sanctions. So obviously, these recommendations would be a good thing if they were followed, now, although, of course, the DPRK has yet to open its doors to work by outside groups on humanitarian issues since it shut them in January 2020 with COVID. But are these recommendations, these two that I just mentioned, are they likely to be followed by the 1718 uh, committee or the, um, uh,
2: the Security Council? So the, the recommendation on the banking channel mm. is fundamental. And the, each panel report uh, for some time has recommended the reestablishment of a banking channel. Oh, so this is nothing new. It's nothing new. Okay. Uh, it's just a very, very difficult problem to, to solve. Humanitarian work in DPRK absolutely relies upon an ability to, to finance those operations. And uh, without a banking channel, they uh, have a, a fundamental difficulty in, in performing their humanitarian function. Actually, they, they are forced to use cash, um, mm,
0: which is... Carrying it um, in a bag, basically, yeah.
2: Which is, has enormous risks. Yeah. Of course... This hasn't been the case for the last three years yeah. because the the country has been closed, yeah. uh, and um, my period on the panel um, coincided with COVID. Right, uh, and, and so um, that that banking channel issue, although it, it still needs to be resolved, and I, I think the secretariat, the UN secretariat, has, yeah. has made steps recently on a on a one-off uh, solution uh, which enabled some money to be paid into um, into DPRK in, right. in order to facilitate uh, these operations there's still a massive uh, issue to be addressed there. The other recommendation is possibly less likely to be implemented, although uh, I, I, I can't say. These, these are recommendations yeah. for member states, uh, fundamentally, who make up the UN yeah. to, to implement if they so choose. Uh, and the, the first group of member states uh, are the, the 15 on the Security Council who make up the 1718 committee uh, as well, uh, and they need to think uh, whether or not this is a good, uh, good idea or mm. a bad bad one. The panel recommends simply that it's considered. Um, we, we don't take a position on whether it's a good idea uh, or not. And I would say that some of that chapter in particular of, of each report is extraordinarily debated uh, mm-hmm. on, on the panel and is actually the cause of, of quite a lot of um, quite visceral argumentation, because actually it, it, th- there seems to some of the panel at least that there's very little evidence uh, of some of its assertions it's also an extraordinarily political subject whereby some member states think one thing uh, and other member states think something completely different and those those arguments come out in the panel's report when they okay. really sh- they really shouldn't the, the panel's report really should be a technocratic evidence-based report uh, and not uh, an opportunity for political uh, assertion but i'm afraid an, <laughs> it's not an ideal world we live in. Yeah.
0: So perhaps it was a, uh, a good thing that your report writing meetings were held on Microsoft Teams rather than in the room? <laughs> <laughs> I,
2: I think that's probably the case. I was never in a in-person discussion uh, of the panel's reports and the drafting processes which, which, which took place. Uh, we, because of COVID, we were always simply negotiating through screens yeah. uh, but my predecessors and doubtless uh, successors will will once again return to a room to discuss these things and and I understand uh, anecdotally there yeah. were some very tense physical moments uh, in the past because these uh, these um these negotiations are can get very very heated yeah
0: now are there uh, traces uh, signs that we can see in the written report of of disagreements where, you know, something's been taken out of the main body, but we can find it elsewhere?
2: Yep, there are. The panel's working methods means that we always seek consensus uh, and try to find a a wording that that reflects everyone's uh, views. Obviously, that's not always possible. And in those cases, the working methods are quite specific that uh, if any expert disagrees fundamentally with uh, something that the panel's report has been asserted and and no consensus language can be found, uh, then there is the option to uh, insert a a footnote Mm. um, uh, in which the the dissenting expert or experts can can explain why they they disagree. In principle, those uh, footnotes uh, are supposed to be evidenced Mm -hmm. uh, as well. This this is the reason that I don't think uh, that this is correct. They rarely are, um, but uh, but if you want to look at uh, look for places where the panel finds agreement particularly difficult, you you look for the look footnotes, the footnotes. Uh, yeah. where where experts uh, a number of experts. Uh, it's usually two, but uh, it's not always two. Experts disagree for reason X. Hmm.
0: Now there are, as I said, uh, ninety eight annexes in hundreds of pages. I didn't go through all of them, but I did find an interesting one in Annex number twenty six. Uh, that's as a uh, a response to the panel uh, by the, uh, the People's Republic of China. The permanent representative of the People's Republic of China to the United Nations in New York wrote a, a short letter to the, the panel of experts. I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about that letter and, and what, what it means.
2: <laughs> yes. Annex 26 was an interesting one. I don't, I don't think uh, the previous panel reports have ever am- amassed um, responses by any member state mm. together in one place. But that was how China sent their responses to our letters. And uh, I, I should explain that um, each six, every six months as part of its investigations, the panel sends out letters to... Um, mm. To countries and and to, to entities, uh, asking a series of, of very detailed questions. Ah, oh, this is um,
0: uh, Annex 92 Then the uh, questions, the, the questionnaire on sanctions implementation. Ah, uh, no, no, oh, no, no. Sorry, no, this,
2: is diff- this is different. Um, th- this is different. this is so. Uh, the the investigation form takes mm. the, the the part of um uh, of a series of, of letters ah. sent out in, in my name, but drafted by the experts yeah. to member states. Right. And So we write uh, these letters. Outgoing correspondence, yeah. OCs, to member states, and China uh, receives quite a lot of these uh, every six months, and uh, they choose uh, to collect their responses to all the letters we've sent uh, and send them back to the panel in a package. And in this case, they were under cover of a, of a letter from the ambassador, uh, which sort of introduced the reports uh, of the, the, their responses. Mm. I think it's it's a really interesting document. What you see is a a diplomatic position. The, mm. the Chinese ambassador uh, says that uh, Ch- his country solemnly and faithfully implements sanctions and uh, supports the panel in in everything it does, even at loss to itself. Even uh, allegedly at loss to itself, although that's, that that phrase has never been explained. And then there's um, six pages of uh, responses, formal responses to to our letters, and the I think the contrast between the tone of the ambassador's letter. And the tone uh, of almost all of the individual responses to the panel's questions could not be clearer. Uh, so there's a, a disconnect between those two? There's a you know, the very senior uh, Chinese official saying, yeah. we, we support the work of the panel. Mm. And then six pages of, of a demonstration of precisely how China does not support the, the work of the panel uh, in any way.
0: So we, we, saw, we saw no breaches, we, we saw nothing?
2: We saw nothing. Oh, and by the way, the panel should not publish uh, anything along these lines in its report, which is, you know, it's, it's external external influence on on, mm-hmm. on the panel's reporting, which is which is unseemly.
0: Now that does seem like a double position to take. There, we can only speculate since we are not in contact with the uh, the PRC government. But I'm just wondering what you've been a diplomat for a long time. What's to be gained by saying, on the one hand. We support these, uh, we uphold these, we enforce these. And on the other hand, to turn a blind eye.
2: Well, uh, I mean that that question is certainly best addressed to uh, to a representative of the Chinese government. But yeah. I can I can speculate. if you're listening, you're welcome on the show. <laughs> I think you know Ch- China doesn't want to appear to be uh, a an irresponsible member of the international community, and indeed quite the opposite. It wants to appear to be responsible, and hence the ambassador's words. But but the but the actual reality uh, is that there's very little implementation, if any, by China of the sanctions on DPRK. And I think their responses to our our very, very detailed questions. I mean, each one of those letters Mm. that they send two or three lines back is four or five pages long. It contains satellite imagery. It contains a lot of information Uh and some very, very detailed questions, most of which the Chinese government seeks to ignore and to tell us something that actually we haven't even asked, uh, which is extraordinarily frustrating.
0: Now, another uh, annex there, Annex 68, has some uh, imagery analysis that shows a uh, a train from the DPRK hitting certain stations in Russia. And there's a quote there in the annex that says, the panel cannot confirm the claim that the train was used to transport ammunition. Uh, And also that goes on, another quote, two experts are convinced it is premature to include any assessments by the panel before exercising due diligence in collecting evidence and conducting investigation according to the panel's standard. Now, on this podcast, we've talked a lot about this question before, about the question of um, are North Korean weapons produced in the DPRK being shipped to, uh, to Russia to use in its war on the Ukraine? Am I right and understand that they may have been moved, but the case has not yet been proven according to the panel's standards?
2: I think that's exactly right, Jaco. The, the panel has high evidentiary standards, and we, we haven't been unable yet to to see DPRK weapons being exported from DPRK uh, to Russia for use uh, in, 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 the, in the war in Ukraine. But one member state, the U.S., uh, has said very explicitly mm-hmm. and very publicly that that is the case. And indeed, there was a picture in the uh, – I think it was the New York Times, it may have been CNN uh, – of, of an empty train. Now, the, the panel wasn't initially sent that picture. It appeared in the press. But mm. we did ask the U.S. Uh, about this story because obviously a, a breach of the arms embargo, particularly by a member of the, the, the Permanent Five, members of the Security Council, is, is a really significant issue. And the U.S. sent us that photograph. Annex 68, did you say? Uh, yeah. the, the, um, we did our own investigation. And actually, um, the, my colleagues are to be really credited with finding that imagery the, the UN provides the uh, panel with uh, some commercial imagery, mm. and we've become really quite good at using it. But that was particularly difficult to find. But the imagery showed a, a train uh, at one time of day uh, on uh, the Russian side of the border, and then a few hours later, the same train on the DPRK side of the border. It was empty uh, on both sides of the How border. How do you know that? Well, you can see it's not carrying It's a, It's a flatbed truck, a ah. series of flatbed trucks, and there's, there's nothing on. Okay. Uh, so it's just nothing. the empty the, rail car. It's the empty rail car, okay. yeah. And some think tanks have been watching that border yep. for some time, and, and they've been able to show uh, satellite imagery with goods coming both ways across yep. across the border. Of course, sending an empty train from Russia to, to DPRK is not in itself. Yeah, by itself, uh, it's uh, not as positive. Is not, well, it's, it's not a breach of sanctions. Mm. Um, there's nothing in that that actually breaks any of the sanctions resolutions. And so the panel found itself in a slightly difficult position. And the panel needs to operate under the terms of its mandate and can really only investigate if, if, there's, a, if there's reasonable cause to think that sanctions have been broken. And some would argue that an empty train uh, is is not a breach of sanctions and so is no business uh, of the panel. Would you, would uh, you be among that some? I, I don't happen to agree with that. Uh. Uh, and uh, I, I thought that the imagery analysis that was conducted by experts on the panel was significant enough to publish in our, in our final uh, report. Although we were absolutely assiduous in noting that we hadn't yet found any evidence Mm. that uh, arms were were transported on that train. Right, And uh, indeed, it may be the case that arms were not transported on that train. I don't personally happen to think that's the case. I I think that actually uh, the U.S., thinks that arms were transported. Um, they probably have some sensitive material. I, mm. I don't know. I haven't seen it. But um, th- they probably have good reason to think so. And that's the reason why they've published that in the media uh, and provided the information to the panel. But, but we couldn't prove that. Mm. And it's, it's really important. If you are an impartial and independent observer, you say, look, this is interesting, but it's, it doesn't prove anything yet. Uh, but it is an interesting fact that that train did go from Russia to the DPRK. And you, you have to question, wh- what is the purpose of sending an empty train to DPRK? Of course, it could have been used to transport turnips uh, or, or something else. Colrabi, um, colrabi as well, uh, or, or, or something that didn't bre- breach sanctions. And uh, if that were the case, mm. then, then, then fair enough. But I think it, it, would, be, it would be the act of a, of a responsible UN state to say, actually, that that train was used to carry turnips and not weaponry and to provide some some evidence
0: for that bill of lading um, something like that yeah i mean yeah. there
2: must be customs yeah. customs documents and all, all sorts of things that would be possible to to find the issue with this story though uh, is is a is a pretty fundamental one for the panel this is a story about <laughs> arms from dprk to russia mm. neither one of which uh, is going to cooperate uh, on this subject uh, with the panel so we wouldn't ask dprk uh, if they'd exported arms to russia that would make us look silly. We would ask Russia uh, and have asked Russia. Mm-hmm. I, 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 the, the answer, uh, I'm afraid, I didn't see um, before I left the panel. Ah. But uh, I imagine it will be in the next report. But actually, you know, if, if Russia is breaking the, the arms embargo, they're, they're unlikely to respond to a letter from Eric Penton Vogue saying, oh, yes, you, you caught us red-handed, well done. I suspect that, that whatever their answer is, it is unlikely to be accurate. Uh, and, and that is a fundamental issue when the panel is, is, is asked to investigate things that are actually beyond the reach of a, a group of eight people with the best will in the world. Yeah. I mean, how do you find out about that? Yeah. There's an awful lot of information. Uh, open source intelligence is a growing feature uh, and, and is what the, what the panel practices. But actually, we're, we're looking at a very, very high bar of evidence that we have to produce and, and, and open source intelligence is unlikely to produce it uh, in this case.
0: Why does the panel have to, be, uh, to do all its work in New York City? Why couldn't you all be based in, say, Shenyang or Dandong and, and you know, look at things up close from the ground? And that, that would be a great response perhaps to the, uh, the letter from the Chinese mission, just write back and say, thank you for your uh, continued support of the panel of experts. We'd like to, for six months of the year, have our
2: office in uh, Dandong. Jacko, as I say, you're welcome to apply to the panel of experts. I think your, your creative thinking would, would be welcome. Uh, actually, the, uh, when I spoke to the Chinese mission, they did uh, say what they would like a, a visit from the panel to, to Beijing. Yeah. And I said there were a number of things that I would personally like to go and look at. But of course, at the time that I was coordinator, China was also closed right, because the of COVID, the, yeah. the, the, the COVID pandemic made that very difficult. Mm. I imagine the panel will go to China uh, in, in the future, um, but I'm not quite sure what it will be shown.
0: Last week, on Thursday, there was this big parade in North Korea that uh, I thought at first was to celebrate the 300th episode of this podcast series, but it turns out it was actually for the 70th anniversary of the signing of the armistice that put the Korean War on pause, a parade that uh, they like to call Victory Day, Victory in the Great Fatherland War of Liberation uh, in the DPRK. And at this parade, there were some senior delegations from both Russia and the People's Republic of China. And at the very end of the parade, almost at the very end, The two uh, chief delegates there, uh, Russian Minister of Defense, Sergei Shoigu, and China's Communist Party Politburo member, uh, Li uh, Hongzhong, I think, both applauded the uh, North Korean uh, Hwasong-17 nuclear-capable missiles as they were trundling through uh, Kim Il-sung Square. After seeing that, I wonder what hope we should have that Russia and China are in fact dedicated to stopping North Korea's nuclear development program and will therefore continue to work in good faith with the POE. I know you've, you've left there, you could only speculate, but if you were if you were still sitting there as coordinator, would you at the end of that parade throw up your hands in despair and say, well, what are we doing here?
2: Well, e- even as a, as a former coordinator uh, on seeing those pictures, I still threw up my hands uh, in despair. I mean, I... I a picture paints a thousand words, yeah. and I have to say, the presence of the Russian defense minister at an arms exhibition in Pyongyang was, uh, was almost unbelievable. But it, it, it illustrates very, very clearly the, the level of contempt that, that Russia has for, for this particular sanctions regime. I mean, Russia has torn up the UN charter fundamentally, uh, and so it's perhaps unsurprising that you know, sanctions on a close military partner are ignored. But I must say, I thought the the contempt shown to the international community by Minister Shoigu's presence was bewildering. Mm. Uh, the, the the Chinese delegation was slightly less senior, but actually it said pretty much the same thing. Yeah. We, we do not believe uh, in these sanctions, and frankly, we will not implement them.
0: Uh, that does seem to, on the face of it at least, undermine the work of the
2: panel of experts? Well, yes, uh, uh, of course it does. I, I think, you know, if if you have two permanent members of the UN Security Council not implementing sanctions to which they have both agreed mm. that's bad. But what makes it even worse is that you know most of DPRK's trade goes through China. 95% right. uh, of, of imports come through China. If China is not implementing sanctions, then actually whatever anyone else does is mm. really rather beside the point. Mm.
0: Uh, Now, we're heading in the home stretch here, so the last couple of questions. Uh, You you left in April this year from your position as coordinator of the panel of experts. Now, in 2022 alone, so that's the the second year that you were there, North Korea, sorry, the DPRK, launched at least 73 missiles, uh, declared the irreversible nature of its nuclear status, uh, enshrined in the Constitution, uh, bought new ships for its merchant fleet, uh, and continued ship-to-ship transfers of uh, cargo and coal and oil and allegedly stole cyber and cryptocurrency assets worth hundreds of millions of dollars. Meanwhile, the humanitarian situation in the country declined. These are not good things. What opportunities do you see for improved future panel of expert cooperation and investigation? What would make things better, and what's feasible?
2: So the panel of experts is responsible for exposing loopholes and describing them and, and explaining the methodologies employed it is fundamentally the responsibility of un member states to tighten up uh, th- those things and and actually the thing that would make panel of experts reports better would be if member states uh, actually implemented uh, its uh, its recommendations uh, of course as we've just discussed two nations are not uh, disposed to doing that uh, and so it's quite hard to see how the work of the panel of experts can be realistically improved. Uh, There there are a number of things that could be uh, done to improve the efficiency uh, and the effectiveness of the panel of of experts. They would depend on consensus at the UN, uh, which, as we've seen, uh, on DPRK is is not possible. In order to make any change in the composition or role or mandate of the panel, everyone would need to agree, and that seems extremely unlikely to happen. So uh, there is a, a, a limit to, 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 what, uh, to the uh, improvement of the panel's position uh, and indeed improvement in the implementation uh, of, of sanctions. There is one thing I think that should be done uh, and that is that the, the management of the panel uh, by the UN Secretariat needs to be improved. We all sign the same contract and yet two experts seem able to constantly ignore the, the terms of that contract uh, with, and impunity, no consequences. with impunity with right. uh, impunity and, and that is surely not right
0: so under the terms of the contract the un should be able to uh, uh, you know, use some disciplinary measures or let them go if necessary
2: yeah uh, of course it, it's unrealistic to expect experts from russia and china not to defend their country's interests that if they did uh, act independently and with impartiality they would be removed by their own countries and replaced by people who, who did do what Moscow and Beijing wanted.
0: Is that the same for other countries? Some people would, you know, I'm, I'm sure there are some uh, anti-imperialists out there who would say, well, you know, I don't imagine that Americans could be uh, independent on such
2: a panel. So I think that there's different things. Uh, I, I, I think it's reasonable to expect that actually that individual experts may not actively seek to undermine the interests of their own country. However, there's a difference between people not actively seeking to mm. uh, undermine their interests and, and actually defending them. There's a lot of countries mentioned in panel reports. Uh, last time, I think the Ethiopia was, the, uh, was the, the case in point. If there was an Ethiopian expert on the panel, I don't think he or she would have permitted that story about the Ethiopian chief of staff using DPRK military radios mm. to have appeared. But actually, no one protects the interests of Ethiopia uh, on the panel. However, other experts will defend the interests of their, of their countries and, and seek to dilute or, or even remove things that portray their own countries in, in a particularly unfavourable light. And that's two experts in particular.
0: Do these two experts, in writing the report, sometimes try to turn the tables and include stuff that could be embarrassing to uh, the Western allies, so uh, France, the UK and the US?
2: You know, a bit of reverse finger pointing, you know. So not to a great extent. Uh, I mean, there's not a great deal. I mean, I'm reasonably sure that US and France and, and the UK do try their utmost to implement sanctions. Uh, there may well be individual uh, individuals and companies in those countries that are involved in sanctions breaking, but I think all three countries would act. The one issue is is the uh, luxury goods, to come Mm -hmm. back to your first question, Mm. uh, where by, you you know, and uh, I've seen it in NK News, where there's all sorts of Western products uh, on the shelves of DPRK supermarkets. uh, And and the temptation on seeing those reports is for the panel to investigate Johnny Walker whiskey or... or Ikea furniture. Ikea furniture or or Mitsubishi cars Mm. uh, or or what have you. And all of these, of course, are brands' names that actually mean a lot uh, in, in in the West, and some of them are luxury goods, some mm-hmm. of them may be changed for military purposes. But the, but the drafting of the report in order simply to name Western goods that might be in DPRK is, is a misuse uh, of those processes. The issue is not which goods are there, the issue is how, how, they, they, get there? how they got there. Yeah. Um, and almost all of those goods must have gone through Chinese customs. Now, it's up to Chinese customs to, to impose those, those sanctions and prevent those luxury goods getting there. But then I come back to that issue that I mm-hmm. raised at the beginning, uh, which is that the, the definition of luxury goods is, is different. So, so that, that aspect of the, of the report, I couldn't say for sure, but I always felt that it was an, an attempt to muddy the names mm-hmm. of Western luxury goods manufacturers when actually it's the, the means of delivery of those goods rather than the goods themselves that are, are, are at issue.
0: Well, that brings us to the end of our time today. I want to thank you once again very much for coming on the show. Eric penton former coordinator of the UN Panel of Experts.
2: Thank you, Jacko. It's been a pleasure.
0: Are you in uh, contact with uh, Netflix to uh, produce a, or to scriptwrite a, a limited series about the, uh, the politics and the ins and outs and the, the dramas and the highlights and lowlights of, uh,
2: of the panel? Um, it, I wish I was. Uh, I, I do think it's, uh, there's, a, there's a rich pickings there uh, for yes. a, for a uh, it would have to be a comedy because actually if it, it would be too tragic mm. to portray uh, um to portray it in 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 all its horror but um but I think it could be quite amusing
0: well the office came out more than 20 years ago so perhaps it's time for a new uh, you know workplace based drama um dark
2: comedy <laughs> it it would be very dark
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh, thanks very much again for coming on the show thank you Jacko Let me ask you this, you're listening to the NK News podcast, so you know more about North Korea than most. But how about the South? To really understand what's happening on the peninsula, you need to know about South Korea. And now you can, through our new Korea Pro news and analysis service. This is not your average news service, it's a thoroughly researched analysis of South Korea's politics, society, and economy from an international perspective. But you know what the cherry on top is? the absolute lack of commercial influences no ads no sponsored articles it's just pure objective analysis by a team of qualified specialists and the best part as a listener of this podcast you get a 25% discount all you have to do is use the coupon code podcast during your sign up so head over to careerpro.org/podcast and start your journey with career pro that's careerpro.org/podcast Ladies and gentlemen, that brings us to the end of our podcast episode for today. Our thanks go to Brian Betts and Alana Hill for facilitating this episode and to our post-recording producer genius Gabby Magnuson who cuts out all the extraneous noises, awkward silences, bodily functions and fixes the audio levels. Thank you and listen again next time.